His career in law enforcement in a small agency involved all facets of law enforcement. In particular, he talks about the dangers of working undercover and all the different things they do in a smaller agency. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. And if you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, Be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Calling us from somewhere in the western United States, we're leaving the area out in the name of the agency out, which is not uncommon when we're talking with law enforcement officers or retired law enforcement officers or former, doesn't matter. Joining us is Adam Wills. Adam, thanks for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. John, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. It really is good to have you here. We're going to be talking about a lot of things Adam worked in a sheriff's department. We're not going to say which one, which state. And he was eventually second in command, which is often referred to as the undersheriff. And just so people know, in most agencies around these states, I only speak for mine, above a certain rank, and ours was above lieutenant, actually above captain, it was they called exempt. So you could be busted back to a lower rank and you serve the discretion of the police commissioner, the police chief, or our sheriff. And that was kind of situation with you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's kind of a unique circumstance that not a lot of people are aware of that actually exists. But yeah, you're right. It, you, you completely are at the will of, in this case, in my scenario, the sheriff. So at any given point, you know, I don't have the same protections that most other employees, sworn employees of a law enforcement agency do. Um, I'm completely working at the will of the sheriff, and therefore... Uh, there's always that opportunity that you may have an unexpected departure. Right. And that's what happened in Adam's case. And I'm, I'm going to short enough really quick because it's not the purpose of our conversation. But he was the undersheriff for years and years. And then a new sheriff was elected. And he could see what was coming. And he decided it was time to move on and do other ventures in life. Am I correct? Yeah. Essentially, it was a, it was a contended primary election. Uh, you know, there was a uh, it was kind of unexpected. Uh, the contender eked out a very narrow win. And uh, being that I was a pointed position, as you say, you know, I, I go with the sheriff. And so uh, I knew that uh, my job there was gone. I had a decision to make. Uh, had been offered uh, some great other other great opportunities in law enforcement with, with some other agencies, including U.S. Marshals. And uh, But, you know, I had a, a moment there where I just had to make a decision. You know, is my uh, my career more important? Or is my family more important? And uh, I chose the latter of those two. 
And it's a tough choice. It really is. You did like 15 years, all told. That's correct, yes. That's a long time. And that's in the area where a lot of a lot of police I know, they're kind of stuck in the middle. It's like they got to hang on for another five or 10 years and retire. Or they don't have the enthusiasm they had when they were younger in the job. And it can, it can become a tough occupation. And then you have demands of family life on top of that can make it really, really difficult. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one one of the biggest challenges I dealt with, at least in those latter years of my uh, career, was uh, being in second in command. I was essentially on call, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred sixty five days a year. Um, it was pr- pretty much nonstop work. I mean, there were w- weeks that I worked uh, sixty hours a week, uh, and that, that takes a toll when you've got uh, uh, a wife and and young children. And so, uh, you know, it was time for me to make a decision to to make some changes. Well, I want to thank you for your service. It's very much appreciated. And when I was a young city police in Baltimore, I had the mistaken mindset that my colleagues who worked in the more rural sheriff's departments and more rural police departments that were further out, they had it easy. I didn't realize at the time that they didn't. Number one, they had a whole lot less backup. Backup was a lot further away. So you could be by yourself on a car stop or something really bad happening and backup be 20 minutes away. For us, it was two minutes. I mean, let's be honest. And you also had to do all the different things because there weren't that many of you. You had to do everything from soup to nuts. Yeah, and honestly, <laughs> I have to chuckle at that, John. 20 minutes would have been a luxury in most situations in the areas that I worked. Um, in many cases, for me... Uh, backup was sometimes an hour away, uh, running emergent fact. And so there were, there were many a times in my career because I worked, uh, I, I chose when I was, you know, working the street full time and pushing a patrol car still versus being an administrator, I chose to work the, the midnight shift, 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. And so we would always kind of go back to bare bones at that time. And I was, uh, the only deputy that covered a uh, 1,000 square mile area in a 4,000 square mile county. And so uh, <laughs> there were times I had to do high-risk vehicle stops with uh, convicted felons and criminals who were armed, doing those high-risk traffic stops with them at gunpoint and pulling them out of the vehicle, cuffing them up all by myself, uh, because I knew that my cover was just too far away. And, and there was no way you could stand there and hold somebody at gunpoint for 45 minutes. No, and I worked in law enforcement, and I didn't have the mindset of what my counterparts did. And I think a lot of America, be honest with you, they really don't, and say not, not just America, North America, they don't have the correct information about what these small, smaller agencies do and how dangerous the job they do is and can be. Yeah, I think there's a common misconception just in general, like you say, that uh, these, these smaller and especially more rural areas, that they're sleepy bedroom communities. And, and I've had that misconception voiced to me on many occasions where people will say, oh, well, you worked in a rural area. It must have been pretty easy and laid back. And they say, well, no, not really. The reality is we deal with all the same exact things that happen in the big cities, uh, just, just on a different scale, right? And so, in fact, I would actually argue that in most cases per capita, those big things that you talk about that happen in the big cities, uh, like homicides and, and drug dealing and uh, drug trafficking and narcotic or uh, excuse me firearms trafficking, uh, those things actually I would say on a per capita level often happen at a much greater rate in these smaller communities and rural communities 
but it's the same things. I mean, we, we've had gang members, gang problems in, in the areas that I've worked, as, as well as cartel issues. And uh, we, we, like I said, we deal with all the same things, uh, just on a different scale and with fewer resources. The reason I bring this up, Adam, and I know you, you're going to understand this immediately when I say it. I've gotten so tired of people taking photos of a sheriff's department in, let's just say, uh, somewhere in Wyoming that has very little population, and they'll show them with an MRAP vehicle, an armored vehicle, and they go, this is the over-militarization of our police. It's not needed here. And I'm thinking, right. it's really needed there more than anywhere else because there's so few of you. Yeah, we, we actually had an MRAP when when I was under sheriff, and uh, that that caused a little bit of contention. Uh, there was certainly a division that occurred. There was, I'd say, the overwhelming majority of people were very supportive of us having that and understood why we did. But there was a few, uh, let's say, more vocal people that um, certainly aired their grievances about it, and uh, most of those conversations usually resulted in them referring to that MRAP as a tank, which it is not, as right. you yeah. uh, well know. But, not even uh, close. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Adam Wills. Adam is, like many people that worked in law enforcement, an interesting story, an interesting character. He's going to talk about working undercover in a small rural agency. He's going to talk about his transition out of law enforcement and much more. Don't go anywhere. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll be right back. We have a new podcast. It's called True Crime Fighters Podcast. Yes, it's another true crime podcast, but a little bit different. There's a huge amount of interest in true crime stories, but very little is told of the heroes that fight horrific crime, whether it be law enforcement officers or everyday citizens. We tell their stories on the True Crime Fighters podcast. Do a Google search for True Crime Fighters podcast, subscribe today, or check us out on Facebook. Do a search for True Crime Fighters. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Return conversation with Adam Wills. Adam is a former law enforcement officer from a small agency out west. We're not going to say which one. Uh, he served as undersheriff eventually before leaving and going into the non-law enforcement world. Well, we'll explain that later on. There's a lot more to it. Before we went to break, Adam, we're talking about people complaining about the over-militarization of police and... I brought the example of people taking a photo of an MRAP vehicle or armored vehicle in a, in a county that's sparsely populated in Montana and saying, this is not needed. And you said that your agency had one and certain people complained because they called it a tank. That's right. I think we're, really what it comes down to is it becomes an emotional response, which I, I completely understand when you observe a vehicle of that stature. I mean, let's face it, they're an intimidating-looking vehicle to see. But I think really what it comes down to is that there needs to be further education and understanding. And I think that the citizens themselves are responsible for that. In fact, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but uh, I don't know at what point uh, in our country we strayed away from the average citizen being responsible for educating themselves about how their government operates and works and, and the things that it does. And so I think it, it's, it's really a responsibility on the citizens' behalf to understand and ask the questions about how those types of things are being used. But it is also a responsibility of the law enforcement agency to 
ed- educate and communicate that to their community. And I'll be honest with you, Adam, I think a lot of them are afraid to do that. They're afraid to tell people the truth about what goes on in their area. And, and in a way, I understand. I want people to think that their residential neighborhood is nice and peaceful and they don't have to worry about uh, the guy down the street who's uh, dealing drugs out of his house, methamphetamine, fentanyl, he's armed to the teeth and beating his kids. I don't want people to have to realize that. I didn't want my spouse to know that. I didn't want a lot of people to know that. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, that's kind of the double-edged sword to law enforcement. Uh, It's one of the things that I struggled with during my career and caused, uh, you know, a significant amount of frustration uh, in me. And it it ultimately leads you to become a little bit jaded. But the the double-edged sword is that if we are doing a good job, the community is unaware of a lot of those significant challenges that are actually happening in their little community right in front of them that they're just not aware of. And so I would always tell people that when they would respond and say, well, but this, we don't need things like that. This is a small community and, and uh, it's safe here. And, you know, we're not dealing with the problems that they have in the big cities. And, and I can say, well, that's not true. And I can certainly provide some statistical information to, to back that up. But ultimately, when I tell people that and kind of give them that paradigm shift and say, you know what, if you're not seeing what's going on in the community, then thank you. Uh, I appreciate the compliment because that means we're doing a good job and, and we're keeping it. We're keeping the blight from the uh, citizen's eye. Even back when I was on the job, which is a long time ago, we had a shift in, in Baltimore City. I always worked the, the worst high crime areas of the city, but we had a shift where stash houses, I mean, drugs were a lot of drugs and weapons were stored before being distributed on the streets. They were moved out in more rural areas. Things like grow houses, where the the kingpins lived, was out in the more rural areas. And you know what wound up happening quite often is you'd have some cop who would pull over a vehicle for a, a traffic minor traffic infraction somewhere out in the county was more rural and have absolutely no idea that he or she was dealing with some of the worst of the worst. Yeah, personally, I think I would attribute that phenomenon to the methamphetamine boom in our country that happened about 10 years ago. And prior to that, you know, most of the drug activity, like you said, and and trafficking would take place in in the larger cities. But as the larger cities cracked down on that and started creating more uh, proactive teams rather than reactionary uh, plans to, to address that stuff, and then with the, the, like I said, the boom of methamphetamine and, and uh, cooking methamphetamine, uh, these, these uh, drug traffickers realized that they couldn't exactly cook methamphetamine in the big cities because it was too apparent. It was too apparent to law enforcement. People knew it. There was no way to really hide it. And so they started to come out to the rural communities in order to escape the, the eye of their neighbors in, in law enforcement and realized that, hey, wait a second, these law enforcement agencies out here have a lot less resources than uh, the large cities. And so maybe this is a really good place for our base of operations. And so I think from there, there ended up being a transition where it kind of became the norm for these criminal enterprises, the the, the cartels and, and the, the street gangs to move their bases of operations out into the more rural areas. Less eyes to see what's going on. And by the way, you mentioned something very, very profound. Uh, to this conversation, less resources, less law enforcement resources in the law enforcement field. When you have sheriff's departments, police departments, you got to handle what comes down the pike. It's not like you get to pick and choose which cases you go after. 
like some of the the federal agencies do. So when you work in an agency where you don't have all the resources like the department I had, if a big case comes along your way, you've got to handle it with the resources you have, the manpower you have. You can't pick other people. Yeah, that's right. I, I you know we we uh, I felt like we're very successful uh, there under our uh, administration at recruiting really really good people, and I think part of that was because. Again, it's, it was a bit of a paradigm shift. The the people that we would recruit, initially you would get kind of that same, well, I, I really want to work for a big agency because I want to do more fun stuff. And when you break through that paradigm shift and you say, you know what, you are going to get more experience, and this is no offense to anybody that works at a large agency, but uh, you're going to get more experience in five years working in a rural law enforcement agency than you are going to in probably 10 working for that big city agency because I know cops that have been working for big city agencies for 15, 20 years and are still trying to buy for a spot in investigations and uh, to do the more advanced level work. And in our agencies, in these rural communities, uh, you're everything. You, you are the one shagging calls. You're the one writing tickets. You're the one handling child sex assault investigations. You're the one handing criminal enterprise investigations. You're the one doing a homicide investigation. There isn't anybody else to call. You're it. And so you gain a lot of experience in really short order. And your experience in law enforcement in a smaller agency, there came a time where you had to get involved in what we call undercover work. And doing that without the backup we had available, and you may have had some task force people available in your area, but it's a different scenario than it would be in the bigger cities. Is that a safe assessment? Yeah, again, you've really got to work with the resources that you have. We had to figure out a way to deal with some of these things proactively and ultimately because my guys, the bulk of my guys were out there on the road and they were the face of the agency. Uh, it came down to me. You know, I, I wasn't as well known as the face. Um, people didn't see me all the time. At least the bad guys didn't. And so, uh, I got my hands wet. Um, and we, we dealt with some things in a creative way and that meant creating some partnerships with some federal agencies and, and uh, uh, partnering with some task force in order to get the resources we needed. When we return, to, to we're going to finish that conversation. Case. We're going to talk more about the undercover experience of Adam Wills on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We will be Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Adam Wills on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Brief story short, he was the former undersheriff of a smaller, more rural agency out west. We're not going to say which one for a lot of different reasons. And he, after 15 years, left law enforcement. Now, during your career, before we went to break out, and we're talking about being in a smaller agency, you got to handle what comes down the pike. And there came a time where you had to get involved in undercover work because everybody else in your agency was known by the bad guys, but you weren't. Yeah, that's right. We, we had to get a little bit creative. And, uh, you know, I, I was seeing that we were having this, uh, this, I don't know that I would even say an increased problem, but it was a problem nonetheless of really two things. Lots of drug trafficking, uh, as well as lots of, uh, un, 
unaddressed criminal warrants. And so we set out and uh, ended up creating a, a joint partnership, joining a task force with uh, the U.S. Marshals and their Violent Offender Task Force, as well as with uh, an FBI narcotics trafficking task force. And so I was actually deputized by the U.S. Marshals as, as a, a deputy U.S. Marshal on that task force, and we set out to try and address uh, some of the, the uh, warrants that were outstanding from our uh, county that, that needed to be taken care of and, and doing some, say, clandestine <laughs> uh, investigations on, on some of the tra- tra- uh, drug trafficking organizations that were operating in our community. How big did the drug trafficking organizations get in your community at that time? You know, for for such a small little area, you'd be surprised. Um, We ended up actually tracking this whole thing back to a very large, very well-known criminal cartel based out of Mexico. And in fact, one of the people that we indicted uh, ultimately out of those cases was uh, alleged to have been within three people of Chapo Guzman. That's pretty high up, I would say. They don't come a whole lot higher. Some of the big names in that world, El Chapo Guzman, Pablo Escobar, uh, some of the members of the Sinaloa cartel, they're no slouches. And together, I, I would really be hesitant to try to come up with a number of people they killed. They're responsible for murdering, I would say, hundreds if not thousands of people. Yeah, ultimately we determined through this two-year investigation that that our county, our little county, was was uh, uh, supplying a very significant part of the entire state and the states that were around us, just because of this organization. And without going into specifics, because we want to keep your location kind of on the down low. And the reason why, folks, I'll be honest with you, the reason why is I've been out of law enforcement so long, I can talk about just about everything I've been involved with. Adam's career has not been that long ago, and some of the people that were involved are still around, and there poses a threat to not just his safety, but the safety of his family. So that's why we're leaving those details out. And I'm not saying it to be hush-hush or we're trying to hide something. We just, we're doing it for safety reasons. I just want you to understand that. So when you're talking about dealing with these type of individuals, when you became aware that they were involved in your area, you had U.S. Marshals to help, but you didn't have a lot of other people. So that meant you were high-ranking in your agency, and all of a sudden, you've got to be the guy on the street, which kind of contradicts what happens in a lot of agencies. It's usually the cops like me. It's not the, the brass. Yeah, and the interesting thing about it, too, was that uh, because of the sensitive nature of it, we actually had to keep it secret from all of our staff for that entire two-year period. So there was a two-year period where the sheriff and I were the only ones in the agency that even knew that uh, this investigation was ongoing and that I was doing this. So, you know, the, the guys would, would wonder why I wasn't in the office or, you know, <laughs> those sort of things. And, you know, little did they know that where I was. And then I, I was out even uh, in the middle of the night, many nights, working even beyond my office hours just to be able to uh, work on this case. And, uh, after two years, we finally had to drop it on them and say, okay, we've got all these indictments. Now you guys got to suit up because we got to go out and get everybody. Um, so a very interesting set of circumstances. In many cases, you know, it gets a bit nerve-wracking because you've got to go out and do this work. And uh, you know that if you get spotted and you get discovered, uh, then uh, things can get pretty scary pretty fast. And uh, in those times, there was only one other person that knew where I was at and what I was doing. 
couldn't tell dispatch where I was at, what I was doing. Couldn't tell my guys where I was at, what I was doing. And ultimately, it just came down to me and the sheriff. And, uh, you know, I'd have to call him and say, hey, here's what I'm up to. And obviously, I was out there uh, in many of these cases working with some of the other task force officers from FBI and that sort of DEA and that sort of thing. But ultimately, uh, it was it was kind of on me. That's a big burden. Uh, the fear factor is one thing, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the responsibility, because the other aspect of this, if you get spotted or we call burned or whatever term you use, the bad guys know that you're, you're on to them and a year, two years worth of work is down the tubes. Exactly. That's a lot of burden to bear. And when you don't have that burden to share with other people, there's an upside to it. One is you don't have to worry about other people messing up. Number two, that's why quite often agents like yours don't tell anybody else except maybe the sheriff and you knew. That's it. Because you eliminate the accidental leaking of information. The good part of it is is you don't have to worry about other people making mistakes. The bad part of it is it's all on you and you don't get to share that burden responsibility with other people. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, <laughs> it's kind of interesting because there were, there were so many times that I just wanted to be able to share because, you know, Law enforcement, it's, it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and uh, we, we lean on each other. You know, it's, it's part of, that's our pack. And uh, uh, there were so many times I wanted to be able to share with, with my guys what was going on, but just couldn't. And, uh, yeah, it's just like you said, you gotta, you got to keep it under wraps because ultimately it's for the, the good of the case, you know. And, and that, was, that was the outcome that we had here. Ultimately, it, uh, it was a very positive outcome, and things worked as, as expected. Without giving away trade secrets what were some of the things you had to use and employ to get the job done well i mean there wasn't anything you know i i wouldn't point necessarily to any specific tools i think more of what it was was just using uh, my brain in my head being creative being wise about my surroundings uh and not just uh you know running into a situation because i wanted to get it done which i think it's both a good attribute of, of a good cop, but it also can kind of bite you in the rear end because uh, we're, we're go-getters, we're type A people, and we have our set, our, our, when we have our sights set on something, we want to just get after it, right? And I think there's um, opportunities in this type of an investigation to say, well, you know what, I'm going to make this thing happen no matter what, and we're going to make this by tonight. But uh, sometimes you just get a gut feeling, you get an instinct, and you something piques your your interest and tells you, you know what, we don't need to do this tonight. There's something not not right about it, and you just got to trust your gut. And I think uh, ultimately that was that was what I used the most was my instinct and my wits about uh, being wise about the situations I put myself in. We called those street smarts and gut instincts. And by the way, it wasn't just hey, I got a bad feeling like you hear on TV or movies all the time. It wasn't that. It was the years of experience that you acquired from working on the street, and also that what had been taught to you from other experienced officers when you were younger or more or less experienced, all of which kind of combined. So here's a great way of putting it. The old, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it might be a duck. From the gut instinct, the street experience, that's what we rely on and quite often I'd say that's what keeps most of us alive, and many cases are made because street smart officers that are able to think on their feet and apply the experience they've had over the years have stuck with it and made cases. When we return, we're going to talk more about that. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. 
Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today radio show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T radio show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T radio show podcast. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Hope to see you online soon. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. Back to our conversation with Adam Wills on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Adam is a former law enforcement officer, 15 years on the job, left at the rank of undersheriff from a smaller agency. There's so many differences in small agencies and the big agencies, but the main thing is lack of resources. You don't have as many people. So here you are, you're the undersheriff, and you wind up having to work a serious undercover case with lots of surveillance using all the different tools that are available to you, and the only person in your agency knows is your sheriff. That's it. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it was, uh, you know, just sort of a lone wolf situation either. Um, sure, the, my, my, my pack of, of uh, deputies that work for me and that sort of thing and other local agencies didn't know, but... Uh, like I said, you know, I, I had the support of other task force officers from uh, some of the federal agencies, and uh, they, they certainly did a lot of heavy lifting as well. But on a local level, you know, when I was going out and doing some of the work, it, it was, uh, yeah, I was, I was kind of out on an island by myself, if you will. I appreciate your modesty in that. What I'm getting at is, I can tell you from my experience, the brass in our agency, they had been years and years and years away from any kind of investigation and a lot of them had forgotten what the job was like. And I'm not saying to be sure. mean, it's just that when you change and you, you go up in rank, your responsibilities change and your focus changes. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I think uh, part of what I would attribute maybe to that is not only just the, the type of mentality that we had in our agency as a whole, you know, we were um, very much a cohesive team. But, uh, you know, both I and the sheriff at the time were, relatively young in comparison to what you would normally expect of those positions. And so, in fact, at the time uh, that I became undersheriff, I was actually the youngest undersheriff in, in my state. And so uh, I think that attributes to, to that. You know, we weren't uh, necessarily in a position where we're like, hey, we're ready to just hang it up and retire and sit in our office all day. Uh, we still wanted to get after it and get the bad guys. You know, we still had that same drive that uh, a lot of those younger, younger guys did. 
So when we think of smoking and banning type sheriffs, that wasn't you guys. You you guys were not older. You weren't a geezer <laughs> like me, uh, like I am now, which, by the way, is quite the accomplishment in and of itself that I'm still around. But yes, sir. You, you had a lot of experience, but I, I guess what amazes me, Adam, is when we did undercover work, we did surveillance work, we would go out with a team. Like when I worked at the DEA in Baltimore, and we do surveillance. One of the, the best ways we could keep an eye on the bad guy is we'd have five, six cars. One would be in front of them, one behind, and they would turn off, another one fell in. And we'd always talk on the radio. The best vehicle I had for surveillance, I'll give this little secret out, because there aren't many left anymore, was the taxi cab. You could follow people all <laughs> over that, all over the city in taxi cab, and they never gave a, a, a second thought about it. So when you try to do that task, working undercover with all the all the burdens of responsibility and the physical threat to your safety, and you have, let's just say, five teams, and you don't have the resources, that kind of is pretty scary. Yeah, and you know, as far as the, the vehicle thing goes, that, that is certainly a problem, um, especially in a smaller area where people start to recognize and learn vehicles, right? And I, I, I'm grateful that we had a really great relationship with a local car dealer that would loan us vehicles without, without asking questions. All he had to do is say, hey, we need a vehicle to use for, for an operation, and uh, they, they, would, they would give us a vehicle. And so during that period of time, I was changing vehicles every week or two. I'd trade in a new vehicle and, and grab another one just so that, you know, we wouldn't be recognized. Because I tell you, the, the opposite is true uh, for, for out here. If I drove around in a taxi cab, uh, I would be, uh, I'd stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's one of the differences. There's a lot of similarities and some differences. And by the way, if you happen to talk to that car dealership people at all, tell them I said good on them and thank you for doing that. And and same with your team. It's all very much appreciated. When you started wrapping this up, you said you wound up having all these indictments to serve. How many people wound up being locked up and what level of criminals were they? I'm not sure I can give you the exact number off the top of my head, but if I recall, it was uh, we had just in our case 37 federal indictments for uh, narcotics trafficking, firearms trafficking, and, and similar crimes such as those. And, you know, as it goes, when one domino falls, uh, there are other dominoes that go with it. And, and the work that we did on that case ended up opening up other cases in other states and other parts of the state and got other agencies involved. And so, you know, there were secondary and tertiary cases that popped up that indicted even more people. And I think by the time all was said and done, during that period of time where we got those indictments, there ended up being over 70 indictments between these uh, other cases and, and my case that, that we worked on. And so, um, yeah, these weren't, these weren't low-level, all of them. I mean, some of them we, we, uh, we addressed in a low-level nature, but the bulk of them were all federal, federal indictments. As we said earlier, some of them went all the way up to the uh, Mexican cartels, and uh, they are extremely uber-violent and uh, malicious in nature. Thank you for that. You talked about you were under sheriff, and we talked earlier about how when you're that high up in a department, you serve the command of the sheriff or police commissioner, police chief, and a new one was elected, and so you, you left after 15 years. You've done a bit of a transition 
but you're still involved with the law enforcement field. You've got two things going on. One's a podcast. We'll talk about that in a moment. The other one is LEO to CEO.com. It's LEO law enforcement officer, the number two CEO.com. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I think really what it came down to John is, uh, I couldn't be separated from my pack. You know, I mean, uh, like I said earlier, it's a, it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And, uh, you know, that first year that I trans- transitioned out, uh, initially, uh, you know, what I was doing had nothing to do with law enforcement. And yet there was this always this inner, feeling like, man, I, I, I'm separated, you know, I'm separated from my pack. And I started a podcast because uh, I really, I just love having conversations with other cops and I love being uh, innovative. That was one of the things that I just uh, was passionate about as undersheriff was, was not subscribing to the, that's the way we've always done it mentality and thinking outside the box. And so I started a podcast called the Public Safety Innovators Podcast in which uh, I interview people, uh, mainly companies, but experts and trendsetters nonetheless, who are leading innovation in law enforcement through uh, the application of technology or uh, unorthodox training concepts, whatever it may be, um, anything that's innovative, essentially, and uh, started that podcast. And out of that podcast, uh, because I, I naturally I talk about marketing and business uh, on my podcast, because that's what I'm passionate about. And I started getting cops reaching out to me and saying, hey, can you give me advice on this business I want to start? You know, what is, what is this? What's my next step? What do I need to do now? How do I do this thing? How do I market properly, right? And I started seeing a need. And I'm like, man, there are so many cops out there that have innovative entrepreneurial, or I like to call them coppreneurs. Uh, <laughs> they have these innovative ideas and they want to tackle them, but they just don't know how. And so I started... Leo or LEO to CEO.com to be a resource for everything that a copreneur would need in order to be able to start or grow their post law enforcement business. And by the way, I think that is outstanding. I love the term copreneur. I can't even say it right. Copreneur, is it? Yes, copreneur. Okay, so it's entrepreneur and cop kind of merged together. One of the things that our firefighter brothers and sisters have had over us all these years as most of them have a side hustle. Most of them have been a business they've been working for years and years and years. When they get ready to retire or they leave the firefighting business, they've got this as their go-to and their new passion. So now you're showing law enforcement officers how to do the same thing. And by the way, they're extremely skilled at handling many, many things and making successful conclusions when you have almost nothing to work with. Yeah, and I think that's a big paradigm shift that needs to happen. And I really want to be on the leading edge of of uh, making that paradigm shift happen because I was guilty of this too. When I left law enforcement and as I was leaving, I kept telling myself, well, this is all I've done for 15 years. This is all I've trained for. This is all my skills are wrapped up in how to be a cop and how to go arrest bad guys, right? And so uh, what do I apply that to? And I thought that I had to do something that related to law enforcement. And so many, 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 many cops, when they leave law enforcement, either they retire and go back to the same agency just in a different capacity that they were in, or what they will do is they will go and work in uh, corporate security, or they'll become an instructor and go out and teach other cops how to, you know. Or worst uh, case scenario, drink themselves to death. Adam Wills, your podcast is called Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. It's all very much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate 
the opportunity to talk about the podcast and leoceo.com. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Today Radio Show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. Oh, 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 oh,